Well, uh, we find ourselves at what's known as the season of Epiphany in the Christian calendar. Uh, Epiphany is that season in which there is the revelation of Jesus and Jesus' identity is made known into the world. Uh, And Epiphany always begins on January 6th. If you need something that's a little bit better of a memory for January 6th, know that the Christian calendar has been celebrating Epiphany on January 6th from long, 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 long before our most current events on January 6th. And the, the, the season usually begins with some reflection on familiar texts. Uh, the three texts that we usually begin to think about in Epiphany are the Magi coming and bearing and giving their gifts to the Christ child. Uh, that's usually thought about on January 6th, this past Thursday. This Sunday is the baptism of our Lord Sunday. And the third event is the uh, first miracle of Jesus' ministry, turning water into wine, which most people in the church say, hey man, what a great superpower that Jesus had. But uh, it's one of the things that I think so often when we come into or, or hear about familiar stories in the scriptures, there's a tendency to think to ourselves, oh, I've heard that all before, I know what that's all about, and I want to invite us to think about the familiar in a very different way this morning as we think about the baptism of Jesus. Just consider with with the number of of TV shows and movies that are being written and produced, there's always something new that you might be able to watch in the world. We uh, just started, Will might like this, and maybe even Clayton, the Lego building competition that's on, is it on Peacock or something like that? So it's all about like engineering building, I don't know. But we're really into that show right now. But one of the things, despite all of that that is available, that is novel, that is new for us to engage with and enjoy, I still find myself from time to time going back to those hands handful of shows or movies that I've seen a thousand times, and I most certainly will watch them again and again and again. Movies like Goodwill Hunting or The Godfather, that's a great one and two, but probably not three. I don't like watch that one because it's so terrible. Or like Pulp Fiction, and yes, of course, Beauty and the Beast. That's like going to be a kid's classic, right, that you just got to have in there. But what's interesting about watching and re-watching some of those familiar shows or movies is that even though you've seen it 30, 40 times or whatever it is, you can watch it again and see something new. You still have that experience, especially since you have seen it, of picking up on things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Or there's sometimes just the reality that that you are a different person when you're watching and experiencing this show or movie again. Right? There is something about like, watching Beauty and the Beast before I've been married, before you've experienced, you know, that this bride of mine, Paige, who who sort of makes you feel like you're not the beast that you are, right, is a very different experience than watching it after you've seen that movie and you know what it is for somebody to see you and pierce through all of the messiness that you come with in your life and and to be committed to you in love. It's a very different experience, And this is what it's like to experience familiar stories in the scriptures. Is that although they might be familiar, there might be things that we pick up that are new. Or just the fact that we're a very different people. That we live in a very different time than the last time we heard these passages might suggest to us that God has something new to say to us through the familiar 
And while Epiphany is about the revelation of Jesus and the revelation of God in Christ, we've titled this new series that we're going through in Epiphany, Hidden with Christ. That saying comes from uh, Paul's writings in Colossians chapter 3 where he says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is, as we live in Christ, as we, the church, live in Christ, we become the ones who reveal Christ in the world. And in many ways, Epiphany is about that reality, that we become the ones who reveal what Christ and Jesus is all about. And on this baptism of our Lord's Sunday, I want to invite us to hear a couple of texts this morning uh, the first is going to be from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. And the second is going to be of Jesus' baptism that's recorded in Luke. And so I invite you, church, to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Start with Isaiah 43. The prophet writes these words to an exiled Israel. He says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And here the second reading from Luke chapter 3. Verses 15 through 17, we'll begin, skip over a few and read a couple more. But Luke records Jesus' baptism in this way. He says, as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I, would, I thought to begin my uh, sort of reflections on the baptism of Jesus this morning, I would play you a video. Not yet, Corey. I'll this you. morning. Oh, no, back up, back up. Okay, there you go. Uh, this is one of my favorite videos that I've ever seen of baptism and I guarantee you, you're going to love what it is that you see on the screen. I know that's a high bar, but check it out. This morning, 
uh, who have accepted Christ as his Savior and as his Lord, and he will demonstrate his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by willingly being baptized this morning. He's been waiting on this day a long time. <laughs> and so, Jordan, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go, Jordan! All right, got a little loud there. <laughs> How great is that? I don't know if you caught the words, a little boy, right before he dunks himself in the waters, he goes, just do it. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. I love baptism. I love when baptism can be mixed with humor. But when I, when I think about baptism, it seems to me to be one of the most beautiful rituals in all of human history. It, it is that act by which people give expression in their lives that they will no longer live for themselves, but that they will live for another. That they will, will no longer think of their lives as their own. It's an, it's an odd act though, right? It, it's an act within the Christian tradition of dying before death, if you will. It's the way that Christians have discovered what does it mean to die before my death? Because it's only in dying to ourselves that the church has, has taught throughout the generations it's only then that it's possible that we can live for another. But baptism isn't just any ritual where, where people just give this expression to their longing to not live a, a selfless or a selfish life. It's specifically a Christian ritual. It is an initiating right into the Christian life. As such, every Christian in every time and in every place has been baptized. Think about that for a minute. Consider how radical and beautiful that is. Every time someone has decided to follow Jesus, whether they were a first century Jew who saw the resurrected Christ with their own eyes, or whether they were the great fourth century African bishop, Augustine, or whether they were a nameless seventh century peasant who was the first convert in China, whether they were an attendee who, whose heart was strangely warmed at one of John Wesley's revivals in the 18th century, or a 21st century skeptic who became Christian, regardless of your time and place, baptism was that ritual that bound the church together and continues to bind the church together. It unites across time, across borders, across culture, across language. We, through baptism, are made one in Christ. Is there anything like that in the world today? Is there any mechanism or ritual that traverses all of the unintentional things that divide us, that traverses all of those things that tend to separate people from one another, that we might look like one, whether we're in Brazil or China or Iran or Scotland and Sweden or in Mexico, those who are baptized into the Christian faith all respond to each other and call each other a family, brother and sister. Is there anything like that in the world today? Baptism is a beautiful thing. Every Christian does this. Even Jesus did it. And he wasn't even a Christian. He was a Jew. But baptism wasn't just like this 
secret sort of password that you had to perform to get into the girls' or boys' hideout, right? Like when you're a little kid, I don't know if you ever did this. Like we did this growing up in our streets where the boys had their like secret hideout and you had to know the secret password or handshake in order to gain entryway into that space, right? Baptism isn't our secret password or handshake. It isn't just a ritual that is performed at the initiation of somebody's faith. Baptism is an act of entry into a story, into the story of the scriptures and into the story of God. Baptism, you see, has its roots in the Exodus story. Exodus, the second book of the Bible, tells a story of how God's people were once slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Imagine the generations of of Israelites who only knew slavery. Imagine the family trees that only knew slavery for 400 years. They only knew slavery as their lot in life. And the Exodus story is a story as to how God freed God's people from slavery. They were no longer to be an enslaved people, but a free people. They were no longer to live in the land of Egypt, but, but to live and reside in the promised land. They were no longer to serve Pharaoh, but to serve the one true God of Israel. And the moment that that demarcates that past identity as Pharaoh's slaves and their new identity as God's treasured possession is that famed event that we will once again watch Charlton Heston perform this year around Easter. It's that event of the crossing of the Red Sea where God's people enter into the waters as slaves but they emerge out of the waters as a free people, as God's treasured possession. And the New Testament grabs hold of this event to describe what is accomplished in Christian baptism. Baptism is that work by which we enter the waters as one thing and we emerge out of the waters as another. We enter as citizens of this world and we emerge as citizens of God's kingdom. We enter as strangers to God and we emerge as the adopted family of God. We enter as sinners dead in our sin and emerged as sinners but forgiven to new life in Christ. Several weeks ago, if you'll recall, Andy Tripp gave a beautiful testimony to this experience in his own baptism. He he described it this way, I'll never forget He's told me this story multiple times. He says, I came out of the waters and I never felt so clean. I never felt so pure. After this train wreck of a life that I lived beforehand, baptism washed all of that away. I was new. This is the redemptive work. This is the saving work that God accomplishes by calling us by name. I don't know if you caught that in the Isaiah text that we read this morning that God calls people by name. In a journal entry talking about the cleansing work of God in his own life, John Wesley, who is a, uh, how would you describe him? He, he's like a, a forefather, if you will, of our uh, theological tradition as Wesleyans. But in a journal entry talking about how he experienced the cleansing work of God in his life, he writes these words. He says, I I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. 
and save me from the law of sin and death. You hear how personal that language sounds when Wesley writes about God calling him. He didn't just forgive the world's sins. He forgave even mine personally. When God calls you church, and many of you can testify to this, it is though God is calling you by name. It is though God is forgiving you by name. It is though God loves you by name specifically. He calls us by name. He calls Will and Bobby and Elaine and Becky and Holly and Michelle. He calls you by name. Come and experience what I have for you. But God doesn't just call us by name. He gives us a new name. There's a tradition of giving, I don't know if you're aware of this, people a baptismal name when they are baptized. Uh, and is often the name of a saint of a saint in the tradition. This name was often given to the baptized person as early as like the third or fourth century in order that they might look up to that saint, that name that they were given as a model of virtue by which they might model their lives after. And we don't really practice this much anymore, but we do see this in a similar way in the Roman Catholic Church when a new pope is named, right? Like Pope Francis's name is, is not Francis, if you didn't know that. His name is, is Jorge Mario I'm going to blow this, Bergoglio, I think. Argentinian, that's a hard word thing for me to say. But, but he takes on the name of Francis, the name of St. Francis of Assisi, that he might aspire to be like Francis of Assisi, caring for the poor, not being sort of overly indulgent with you know, his ministry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we don't lose our names at baptism in the same way that the tradition has often instructed, but we do gain a new one. We gain the name Christian when we are baptized. We take on in our baptism the name of Christ. And Christians, I know this sounds so obvious, Christians are given that name that they might live up to that name. To have the character that is in Christ Jesus in us. That the things that Jesus did, we would do to live distinctively as the people of God in the world, to live as citizens of God's kingdom in the midst of the empires of this world. And that, quite frankly, is not an easy thing to do in the world. The church stumbles and falls all, uh, more than we would like to admit like to this end. And the difficulty of that task was all too familiar to the Israelites that Isaiah wrote to in his book when he was prophesying. Isaiah's 43rd chapter is written to a people who are in exile. If you're unfamiliar with that language, in a simple way, exile describes that state of living as a minority culture in a majority culture, right? God's people in Isaiah are not living in the promised land anymore. As good as that was at Exodus, they've been displaced from the promised land. They are living in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire historically had conquered God's people, and in anticipation that conquered people often rebel, apparently conquered people don't like to be conquered, right? <laughs> that, that what Babylon did in order to prevent any sort of uprising or revolt against them, they sent a large contingent of those conquered people to their capital city that we know as Babylon, right? And, and the hope in doing this the hope was that they would be educated in Babylonian schools, 
the hope was that, that Jewish men would marry Babylonian women and that, that uh, Babylonian men would marry Jewish women. And in having kids, they'd have to have that awkward conversation like, you're Jewish, I'm Babylonian. What religion are we going to raise our kids in, right? And the hope was that eventually over time that, that the children of these generations would assimilate into Babylonian culture, that they would learn the customs and practices of the culture, and in effect, the hope was to turn them into little Babylonians. And this is what Isaiah is writing to God's people. How do you, as God's people, maintain your identity when everything around you is trying to force you to become something other than that. This is important for us to think about what it means to live in exile in the church today. If you're unaware, the church is ever so slowly moving into a decentered part of the culture in which we live. Once the majority culture, we are slowly becoming, maybe not even slowly becoming anymore, let's be honest. We're becoming a minority culture. And there's a lot to say about this reality. Um, Some good, some not so good. But not the least of which is to say that there's never been such an opportunity for you to reach people for Christ because there are more people that don't know him than ever before in our nation's history. But there is much more than we can say in the few minutes that I have left in this sermon. And yes, I said few minutes just so you could hang on with me just for a couple more. But in an increasingly secular world, in an increasingly non-religious world, how do we as a church, how will our kids maintain the distinctive quality of the name that we were given that they will receive at our baptism? Christian. How are we going to live into that identity in the world today? How do we live up to that name? Not looking like the world around us, but just looking like Christians. Wouldn't it be nice if Christians looked like Christians? How do we live as peacemakers in a violent world? How do we live mercifully in a world of judgment? How do we desire righteousness and holiness in a world that says, satisfy whatever your heart and whatever your eyes are set upon? How do we live with pure hearts when our hearts are tempted, or when the world tempts our hearts to to, to be placed on things of this world? How do we love our enemies when we are formed in a culture to hate them? How do we not lose our saltiness, in effect? How do we continue to be light in a dark world? How do we sustain ourselves in that odd identity as Christians? Can I just say as a sort of aside, being a Christian is weird, It is an odd, difficult, hard thing. It isn't just some casual thing about showing up on Sunday mornings to follow Jesus. And the things that I just described is like just a few things in the Sermon on the Mount is a radically different way to live in the world than just to sort of be absorbed into the culture. So how do we do it? Two things for our consideration this morning in maintaining our baptismal identity. The first is found in one of the unique features of Jesus' baptismal story here in Luke. All four of the gospel writers record the event of Jesus' baptism, but in slightly different ways. 
Uh, And Luke tells us, uniquely, that after Jesus was baptized, he was praying. Prayer becomes a major motif all throughout the Gospel of Luke. We often find Jesus praying in solitude and quiet by himself. We see Jesus praying before he performs certain miracles. We see Jesus praying before he goes to the cross. We, in fact, see Jesus praying on the cross. Is what sustained Jesus in his ministry, what sustained Jesus when things were really, really, really difficult, when his hometown hated him, when his disciples left him and abandoned him, when he was all alone, the thing that sustained him was prayer. We, uh, I, I think, I'll, I'll just say this one thing. If there was anything that I could do as your pastor that I think would be meaningful to contribute in, in your life as you see God, it's to teach you to pray. I met with Don uh, Edwards, who's not here, this morning after his baptism. He was baptized in the faith. He's just had a a new Christian. All of this thing were new to him. I said, Don, the most important thing that you can do now is to learn to pray. And so we met every Tuesday for like three months. And I was like, let's learn to pray. And quite frankly, if I have to do that one-on-one with every single one of you, I will commit myself to that work because you need to learn how to pray, to commune with God, that he will be in you and you will be in him if we're going to be Christians. The second thing that we have to commit ourselves to is discipleship in a Christian community. Um, That's like a a really fancy way of saying like, be part of a church. (laughs) Baptism is always something that is received uh, as funny and as humorous as it was, the little boy sort of dunked himself, right? It's like, ah, you kind of did it wrong, dude, but it's okay. It's all right. But baptism, you, you don't go into the waters alone. Nobody, we don't say, come up here and say, all right, you're going to baptize yourself into the Christian faith. No, it's always something that is received, that you receive from the church. That You aren't baptized in your own personal faith. As much as we love in our culture to say, like, you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, and I think there's some important ethic ethical thing to sort of abide by there in a pluralistic world with lots of worldviews. You are not baptized into your own faith when you're baptized. You are baptized into a community of faith, a community that has spanned millennia, a community that transcends all borders, languages, and cultures. And that means that you are now part of the family of God, and you need the family of God to sustain yourself in faith in the long term. One of my concerns pastorally for people in these days is how are you going to make it in your faith without the church family? Maybe you will, but will your kids, will your grandkids, will the faith be passed on? And so when we have home groups or dinner groups, my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you is get involved beyond just Sunday mornings because you need that if you're gonna be truly Christian. All right, I'm done. With this one last thing, of course. I saw my wife check her watch, and I was like, okay. There's that, uh, speaking of movies, there's that great classic, uh, Disney classic, The Lion King. And there's this dramatic moment in that movie, for those who have seen it, where Simba, you know, he's been hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa and just, like, having a great time. And he's having this, like, real urge and pull to, like, I got to go back home, right? 
and take my rightful place as king. And he has this vision where he sees his father, Musafa, like up in the clouds. And Musafa says to him these like really profound words. He says, remember who you are, right? I don't do that voice very well, but that's okay. (laughs) Remember who you are, church. On this baptism of our Lord's Sunday, remember who you are. Remember that you are Christians. Remember that you have taken on the name of Jesus, that you might live into that reality in your lives. Become who you were named to be at your baptism this year. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.